This morning we're continuing the sermon series, Explosion, How the Gospel Goes Forth. And we're looking at key stories in the book of Acts. We've been doing that this summer, kind of picked up here and there with different things. Um, And so today I'm going to do it a little bit differently. I'm going to kind of pull at George Lucas, and we're looking at Philippians, and then we're going to go back to the origin story in Acts 16. Um, So stick with me. Um, Hopefully it won't be too confusing. Uh, But here in this passage is a fairly familiar passage, probably, Philippians 4. And Paul is summing up at the end of his letter, which is really more of a sermon. It probably would have been heard and not read, since most people weren't readers at this time. Uh, So Paul's giving these kind of rapid-fire instructions as he's kind of coming to the end of what he's telling the church. And so verse 9 kind of gets left off the cute little posters, usually, because it's a little bit of an odd verse. It's a bit uncomfortable. It's not something I want to stand up here and say boldly, that whatever you see me do, whatever I say, do more of that. That's a little bit of a bold statement to make. But Paul was comfortable saying that, Because the church at Philippi had already seen him do it. That he had already lived out his life in such a way when he was founding the church that this was not something new. This was the practice he lived um, constantly. So let's jump over to Acts 16. If you have your Bible, you can turn with me. If you have a phone, you can scroll. Um, But we're going to be spending quite a bit of time there in Acts 16. So to kind of recap where we've been this summer and through the the book of Acts so far, um, after Jesus is is killed, he's, he's dead, he's resurrected, and then he ascends to heaven. Um, and then the Father pours out the Holy Spirit on all the believers and starts the church. And the church kind of explodes into existence with thousands of people uh, responding and coming to Jesus in those first few weeks and months and years. But soon persecution starts to come against the church. And so we see this guy named Saul who's persecuting the church until Jesus literally stops him in the road and says, what are you doing? Um, and converts him from being a Christian killer to basically the greatest missionary of all time. So most of the rest of the book of Acts follows Paul on three missionary journeys. And so when we pick up here in Acts 16, it's in the middle of his second missionary journey, and it's probably around A.D. 49 or 50 when he arrives in Philippi. So let's uh, look with me, if you will. Um, We're going to start in verse 6. So Paul and Silas are traveling together. They pick up Timothy along the way, and then at some point, Luke jumps in and joins the team, and he's the one who's actually writing the book of Acts later, and so when it changes from them to us, we know that Luke is a part of the team uh, for that time, and he's part of this story too. So in verse 6, Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to head for Macedonia, concluding concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So throughout the book of Acts, we see the Spirit speaking in different ways. Lindy set up the children's message beautifully in that we see God move in different ways. And we see different examples of this, especially in the book of Acts. Um, So last week, as we were talking about the story of Saul and Ananias, God gives Ananias really specific instructions. Go to Straight Street. 
Paul and his company don't get that here. The Holy Spirit says, don't go there, don't go there. And so finally, Paul gets this vision um, and instead of immediately packing their bags, you can see they talked about it together. We concluded we're supposed to go here. So again, we see that in, in the church, and the community, we discern together what God is calling us to do. And, and together, we kind of hear from God and, and discern where he's calling us. And so that's just important for us as a community today as it was for the apostles um, in Acts. And so they're getting ready to go to Macedonia. And so they start heading towards Philippi. And so Paul's standard procedure, he does this a lot, he goes into a new city, and he typically tries to find a synagogue, and they worship with the Jews there, they explain how Jesus is the Messiah and the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And so Paul will stay there and preach as long as they'll have him, usually a few of the Jews will respond, everybody else gets mad, and then he goes next door and starts talking to Gentiles. And usually within a few weeks, or sometimes a longer period, there's a nucleus of a church, he appoints some leaders, and he moves on. Uh, and so that's typically what he would do, and that, that was a model that worked really well. But when he comes to Philippi, it won't work because there's not a synagogue here. There's not, they had to have at least 10 Jewish men to have a synagogue, and evidently there's not that. But there was a place of prayer outside the city, um, and so they go there to meet with the Jews who are there and, and, and start the process in a little bit different way. And so it turns out there's really just a group of women gathering by the river to pray, and so it's got to be a little bit awkward culturally for a group of guys to walk in, and then here's this ladies' Bible study. Um, but that's how the Holy Spirit had led them. It's maybe not what Paul envisioned when he saw a man of Macedonia saying, come help. Um, but that's how the Holy Spirit led them. So they walked into this situation and were obedient, even if it didn't meet maybe what they were expecting. So in verse 13, on the Sabbath, we went outside the city gates, the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God, so a Gentile, but she was worshiping the God of the Old Testament. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. So we see that Lydia is a Gentile. She's joined the Jewish ladies' Bible study. Um, she's probably a lady of some significance in the town. Um, the purple dye at that time that, that made this purple cloth was regulated by the empire. So she had connections with high-powered people, probably connections in Caesar's household. Um, she has some money and uses her home to be kind of the, the home base for Paul and the apostles here, and so becomes the nucleus of the church that's going to form. And so she uses her resources for the kingdom uh, to advance what God is doing there, and that's in contrast to the next little snippet of the story we see um, as we keep going. The Sabbath rolls around again. It might be the next week. It might be a couple weeks. The timeline's not really clear. Um, but Paul and his, his friends are again going to the place of prayer, and this time uh, they, they encounter some opposition. So once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. 
At that moment, the spirit left her. So there's this demon-possessed girl, and not only does she have to be tormented, but then she's tormenting Paul and the others as they're trying to preach Jesus. And at first glance, it doesn't seem what she's saying is that bad. I mean, we read that, and it's like, oh, well, that's kind of what they're trying to do, right? What's the problem with that? You know, no bad publicity. Um, but when you think about it, nobody in that culture would have seen the capital letters that end up in our Bible, Most High God. This was a polytheistic society, and she's talking about a generic God out of pick your favorite God. Um, you have the Roman gods, you have the Greek pantheon, you have local tribal deities. And so now instead of just talking about Jesus, Paul is having to explain, no, it's not anything like Zeus or any of these others. This is different. Uh, so finally he says, we're going to end this. We're going to set her free and we're going to continue with the mission that God has for us. But when the spirit leaves, so does the cash flow. And so her owners now find this girl worthless. And so they begin to take it out on Paul and Silas. And so they drag them to the city courts um, and start making accusations against them. They're not going to argue religious differences. They make it into this big thing that, that's going to cause this riot, that this huge like nationalistic pride that we're Romans and they're not. And they're trying to disrupt the city. And so uh, trying to just stop a riot from breaking out, the magistrates just say, okay, we're just going to beat these guys, throw them in jail, it doesn't matter, let's just get rid of them. So, uh, in verse 20, we pick up, they brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews, and they are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept. The crowd joined the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they were severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. So they basically get thrown into jail for helping a little girl, but that's not how everybody else saw it. They've been beaten to a pulp, even though... They shouldn't have been. They were Roman citizens. They shouldn't have been beaten or put in jail without a trial. Um, but they don't complain. They're not whining. They're not even trying to talk their way out of it. And you know that Paul could have done that. Um, but they see an opportunity. They literally have a captive audience in front of them. So they're going to preach the gospel. And so they spend hours praying and singing. Um, it doesn't say for sure, but I'm willing to put money on it. These are not dirges. These are not country western crying in your beer songs. These are praising the name of Jesus. These are lifting up, exalting the Most High God, preaching and proclaiming who he is to the other prisoners around them. And so they keep doing this for hours. And it says at midnight. Now midnight may not sound like particularly late to us. You might just be getting started on your Netflix binging at midnight. Um, but think about the ancient world. When, when the sun goes down, there's no light. Nothing is going to be happening. So hours after everybody else is done for the night, they're going at it. Um, they're singing, they're praising, um, they're, they're preaching. They're, they're trying to declare the goodness of God, even in a, in a rough situation. And so suddenly, um, and there's no reason to, to think they would have expected it, suddenly th there's an earthquake. And so we, we pick up in uh, verse 26. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. 
All at once, the prison doors flew open, and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. And so earthquakes are not particularly uncommon in this area. They happen sometimes, but often they were attributed to the work of one of the gods. Um, so we don't know exactly why the other prisoners just didn't bolt as soon as the earthquake hit, but maybe they had been listening. Maybe they'd been hearing these songs about the one true God and about his son who became God in the flesh, but didn't use his power as an excuse to take advantage of us, but came and made himself a slave so that we could be saved. And maybe the fact that there was an earthquake that ripped their chains and opened their doors but didn't cave in everything and kill them, maybe they were just taken aback by it for a minute. And so that gives Paul the opportunity to not only save this man's life, but to introduce him in a whole new segment of the population to Jesus. And so he begins to reach out, the jailer, and says, okay, what's going on here? Uh, the jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, saved is not, you know, take off your church hat for a minute. Saved is not necessarily a religious word. You know, it also means rescued and protected. So it's not necessarily, tell me more about Jesus, but he knows something is going on. There are things going on that he can't explain. And so Paul and Silas take this opportunity to say, hey, we know what you need. You may not be able to put it into words, but we see this window of opportunity in your life, and we're going to take it. And so they reply, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds, and then immediately he and all his household was baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. So the joy that Paul and Silas had in jail when they were beaten to a pulp, hurting, that joy is now transferred, and it's multiplied. And so the jailer and his whole family now experience the joy of the Lord in a way that they wouldn't have if Paul hadn't been put in this situation. And so they probably stay up all night at the jailer's house. It's probably next door to the jail. And they, they celebrate. They're now family in Christ Jesus. Um, and they share bread together. And they talk about what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it look like to live lives that look radically different from everything else? Because they've been set free. They've been set free from the perfectionism and the cultural expectations that caused a man to almost be ready to kill himself. They've been set free from darkness and depression, and they have a new hope, a new life, a new joy. And so they still have to deal with the reality of their situation. Paul and Silas still have to go back to jail until they're released. And the next morning, the magistrates send word, hey, you can let them go. Um, and the jailer says... The magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. And this is where Paul gets defensive. He said to the officers, They beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens, and threw us into prison. And now they want us to leave quietly? No. Let them come and escort, them, escort us out themselves. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. 
they came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting that they leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left and went to the next town. So the day before, Paul didn't whip out his Roman citizenship to save himself from a beating. But now that he sees he can use his citizenship to help protect the church, he's waving that flag as, as, as big as he can. Um, because anyone who beat a Roman citizen unlawfully could lose their job, or worse, depending on how things went. Um, and now that he can turn the tables on them, he can offer some legitimacy and some leverage for this tiny little church to have a, a fighting chance to survive and grow um, in a hostile climate. And so he, he gives what he can, not to protect himself, um, but to protect the church. And so what happens to the church at Philippi? Paul, Paul and Silas have to leave more quickly than they expected. Um, and we might expect a church like that, you know, just a handful of people who, you know, came to know Jesus within the past week to, to not do so well. But that's not what happens. The church at Philippi flourishes. What they had seen and heard and experienced in the lives of Paul and Silas becomes embedded into their culture as a church. It becomes part of their spiritual DNA and who they are. And so they become people whose lives are filled with joy. They generously give to other believers even when they don't have much themselves. They loved each other and became a family and became someone that Paul then writes to as his family, as his brothers and sisters, as people he loved deeply. And so when Paul sends the letter to the Philippians, it's about 10 years later, most of his letters are, are sent because there are problems he needs to fix. And that's really not the case here in Philippians. He's writing because he loves them and to encourage them that, that even as they're going through persecution, just like Paul did, uh, that there's hope and they can still have joy in the midst of it. And that that call to have joy means a lot more because of what they originally saw and how the church was birthed. The joy in jail birthed this church, and so that affects the whole trajectory of the, this church and, and their destiny. And so when we look back at Philippians 4, it makes a little bit more sense, right? When we see kind of where it came from, and we see the commands to rejoice and rejoice, and 15 times in Philippians, Paul uses the words to rejoice or to have joy. And it makes sense when we see where it came from. And so, what does that mean for us? I think we need to be clear that joy is not something that we manufacture. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit. It's part of the fruit the Holy Spirit develops in our lives. But we can ask for joy. We can cultivate joy in our lives and ask God to do more of that work in us. And I think that's what Paul is talking about here. It's not something we have to try to dredge up and make happen. Um, because joy is not like happiness. Happiness is very circumstantial. It's based on what's happening around us. Are we feeling good that day? Or are we not? But joy is deeper than that. Christian joy is a reality in Christ Jesus. It is a deep, unshakable confidence in the goodness of God. No matter what's happening around us, we can tap into the reality of that joy in Jesus. Because we know that he is good. And that he is actively working all things, redeeming all things, even the brokenness and the darkness and the pain around us. No matter how dark the days seem, we know that he is on the throne and that his kingdom will never stop advancing. It will never stop increasing. 
And we know that there will be a day when death and all his friends will be defeated once and for all. And that Jesus will make all things new. This is where our joy comes from. This is our hope. And that even in the darkest of days, we know who our God is. We know he will not fail. And we know that he will do what he has promised. So this is the confidence Paul has when he can tell his followers, do what you've seen me do. Follow me as I follow Christ. Because we know that joy comes from Jesus, but we also know that Jesus lived a joyful life when he was here on earth. We see that in the Gospels. We see his first miracle was to create more wine at a wedding, you know? He lived a life that, that was joyful, that was fun, that children flocked to him, you know? He, um, he loved people. He loved being around people so much that his enemies said, you know, he's a drunk and a glutton, and, and it's like, no, that's, that's not it, but, but celebrating with people, celebrating God's redemption, that was something Jesus was good at, and I think we sometimes gloss over that, um, but Jesus also knew joy and suffering, and that's often what we see Paul talking about, because that's most often Paul's reality, but we see in Hebrews that the writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. So what was the joy set before Jesus? I submit that it's you. It's me. It's the, it's the fact that he could redeem us and that we bring God joy. You bring God joy. He delights in you. And he went through everything he went through to die on that cross, scorning the shame of the cross so that he could know you and he could love you and he could set you free. He could delight in you. Zephaniah 3 tells us, the Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. God delights in you, not because of anything you've done or what you haven't done, but because you're his kid and he loves you. And so it's in light of that, that that's why we can worship. That's why we can sing and shout and praise. Because the joy that motivated Jesus is now our joy. We are now given the joy of the Lord. And that when we've experienced this love of God and this joy that he gives us, that we know he has done everything for us. He has walked through the valley of the shadow of the death. And that when we walk through that same valley, he walks with us. He's with us every step of the way, and he never abandons us. And so the joy of the Lord is always with us, always present to us, always a reality we can draw strength from, no matter how dark the night. We reciprocate and we respond because of what he has done for us. So we can say with Paul, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. When we are confident in the love and the goodness of God, that reality empowers us to live with joy in all circumstances. To be thankful to God in everything. We don't have to be thankful for everything, but to know that he is always with us and that his presence is enough for us. I want to make something clear, though, about this, this passage. 
worry and anxiety uh, as a thought pattern in which we choose to doubt the goodness of God and we choose to doubt his ability to take care of us, that's something we're not supposed to do. That goes against both the teachings of Jesus and Paul. But when we're talking about anxiety disorders, that's entirely different. Anxiety disorders are not sin. They are not a lack of faith. They are not something we can just get over if we try harder. The church has not done a good job often over the years dealing with mental health issues. And I want to just say clearly, there's no shame in taking medication for mental health issues any more than there would be shame in taking Advil for a sprained ankle. Prayer and thanksgiving Prayer and thanksgiving are great tools to combat anxiety, but so are doctors and medication and counselors. And so that's something that we don't need to hide from, and that's something as the church we need to support each other with. Um, that there's no shame in that, and there's no shame in, in, in dealing with those just like we would deal with any other medical condition. But I do want to point out, though, that the peace of God is a strong, strong thing. It's not just a feeling, um, but it's, again, a reality that we can access. And Paul uses a military metaphor to describe peace. He talks about being guarded by the peace of God. Um, and that's something that we're not around soldiers on a daily basis, but for people who were, that would have been a strong image. And so the peace of God will guard you, and it will strengthen you, and it will sustain you when nothing else in this world can. And I know that has been true in my life. So when it makes no sense for there to be peace, the peace of God can meet you where you need it. So it's not easy to walk in peace. It's not easy to walk in joy all the time. Um, I think, honestly, for some people, it comes more naturally than others. Some people are more bent towards that kind of personality. Uh, for me, I'm not. I've been called stoic probably 10 times more often than I've been called joyful. Um, and when God told me to, to, to preach on joy, I'm kind of like, really? That's, you want me? Okay. Um, so anyway, so I'm very much preaching to myself here. Um, this is not something I have figured out. Um, but it is something that joy is available to all of us in Christ Jesus. It's part of the fruit of the Spirit. It's part of what we're given. It's part of our inheritance as believers. And so as we grow in maturity, we should also be growing in joy. And so this is also not just a personal thing. I need to grow in joy. But when Paul is talking to the Philippians, he's talking to the Philippian church. He's talking to a group of people. It's the corporate commands. And so when he's saying is not you rejoice in the Lord, you personally, but y'all rejoice in the Lord. Y'all give thanks. Y'all pray. Y'all don't worry. And so I feel like I'm supposed to ask the question today, are we a church like Philippi? Have we cultivated the joy of the Lord in our midst, even in struggles? Are we choosing to build a culture of joy? Is that part of our spiritual DNA? We've gone through some hard things as a church the past few years. There have been big institutional level changes that have affected us. And there's also been the personal pain of losing close friends. Choosing to walk in joy does not negate those experiences. But it declares that we will trust and we will be confident and we will celebrate the goodness of God even in the difficulties because he's worthy of that. So I ask us today, are we willing to cultivate joy? Are we willing to make this place an environment where people want to come to church, where they can easily experience the transforming love of Jesus? Is that something we're willing to put the work in to make that part of our culture? Are we willing to lean into all that the Spirit of God has for us, 
even if that means avoiding opportunities we thought we were going to, and walking through doors that were maybe not what we expected. I don't know what's ahead for us as a church, but I know that God is good, and I know that he can bring good out of anything. There are times it's not easy to say God is good. That's been a hard thing for me to say the past several years, personally, in my life. But that's why we need each other. That's why we need to cultivate a culture of joy that so together we can encourage each other. That together we can play the long game. We can look ahead and joy believes that there is good coming. That even in the dark of midnight, it may take a while, but we will see the goodness of God in the land of the living. We can hold on and we can say with Abraham, God, I don't know how you're going to do it, but you're the God that brings life from the dead. And you call things that are not as though they are. And we can cultivate that. We can cultivate joy. We can cultivate, even when things are hard, even when we don't know what's ahead, we can say, God, you're good and you bring good things. It may not be what we expect, it may not be what you're looking for, but you can redeem whatever it is you call us to walk into. So, we're going to close in a little bit different way. Um, it's kind of a, an open-ended challenge to all of us, myself included, and that's a little bit hard to respond to corporately. Um, as we sing our last song, um, if you don't know Jesus, if you'd like to join the church, we always invite you to come and respond to God in that way. But I also say that that God often starts explosions in small ways with just a few people um, and just a few people choosing to completely surrender ourselves to God, to be willing to do whatever he asks, whatever he asks of us, uh, however he wants to lead, that can have a ripple effect on this whole church community and that can have a ripple effect uh, throughout our town and throughout our city and throughout our state, and throughout the whole world, and that's how God moves. He starts small. He starts with households that then become churches, that then thousands of years later are still affecting the world. So whatever you need to do as we sing our last song, if you'd like to come and pray at the altar, if you'd like to ask God for more joy in your life, or more joy for us as a church, or to ask for God's leading and direction to where he's calling us and how we discern that together in community, I invite you to do that as we stand and sing together.